Hi everyone, Happy New Year. It's me, Lee Moreau. We're working on season three of the Futures Archive. We're very excited about it. And kinda to give you a little bit of a sense of what it's about, I'm gonna pause for a moment and then another moment. Okay, yes, it's about waiting. Our whole season three is going to be about waiting and all of its various forms. Both the good types of waiting and also the very good types of waiting. No, I'm just kidding. Waiting comes in all forms. And so we want to talk about all of that. Um, and most importantly, we want to talk about the way that waiting is designed. Waiting is probably one of the most important things that we've designed in history. And we're excited to talk all about that. So until we get to that point, um, and as you wait for waiting, we wanted to also share something with you that we think you might find interesting. Last season, uh, one of my co-hosts was Sarah Hendren, the remarkable professor, author and designer. The thing that I think is most remarkable about Sarah is obviously she's incredibly articulate, but she balances this line between someone who has practiced design and understands it from the perspective of someone who makes it and then also has this sort of lens of uh, the classroom. So she brings this sort of academic perspective, having seen stuff in the field and then also in the classroom and seeing her students confront series of challenges that she's also faced. So um, when she wasn't talking to us about human-centered design and health in our episodes on the AED, the defibrillator, the fridge, and the insulin pump, um, she's working at the Olin College of Engineering as a professor. And while she was there, she made a podcast called Sketch Model, which we love. The series delves into the engineering classroom and looks at how perspectives from the arts, humanities, and social sciences shape the why and should questions about the technologies that we build. Here's episode four of that series. And if you like it, we encourage you to check out the entire show. Now, in the meantime, don't forget about TFA. We're very excited about season three, and we promise you it will be worth the wait. Welcome to episode four of Sketch Model, an audio series about the engineering classroom and how the humanistic disciplines of the arts, the humanities, the social sciences, shape the why and should questions about the technologies we build. So far in this series, we've talked a lot about the big barriers that have hindered the engineering classroom from taking up ethical concerns in a sustained way. But we also want to explore what happens when technologies are deeply tied up with questions in a successful practice, in the things we build and in blended classrooms where we teach. So today I'm talking to Mimi Anoaha, an artist and creative technologist who also held a creative residency at Olin as part of the sketch model program on our campus. That's the same program from which this audio series arises. Mimi makes all kinds of artworks and design collaborations using tech as her medium, databases, digital maps, artificial intelligence, and more. And in the classroom, she brings students along with her, pushing them in new directions right there in the laboratory. Sometimes the students will become fixated on what do you know how to do? But what I want them to think about is what do you choose to do in this yeah. moment? Yeah. And that's a different question because that one, it matters what you know, but it's not the end all be all. It's, it's what you apply in a particular moment, which means you have to think about the context and the audience and the place where it is and who you're talking to and why. You have to just deal with so much more that it doesn't become this simple optimization of one variable. Instead, it's like, you're going to juggle. You got to juggle it all, which is life, you know? 
Mimi Anoaha has a wide-ranging art practice. She's held residency fellowships and professor appointments at the Royal College of Art, the Data and Society Research Institute, NYU, Columbia, and many others. And this past summer, she was the inaugural artist-in-residence at the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab at Princeton. We talked about how an anthropology major became an artist in tech, and how an engineering classroom can also make space for the messy, unfinished nature of politics. I hope you'll stay with us. Mimi, I'm glad to have you today, um, in part because uh, you were our first creative in reference, this kind of residency program that we ran through Sketch Model at Olin. But you're also an artist in between a number of platforms of technology, social practice, you do some writing. And so I wanted to talk to you about um, what that looks like, what it looks like to be an artist whose kind of natural language and vocabulary is also in the technical and in engineering and how it is that you've built a career in between those two things. So I wonder if we could just begin at the beginning, because you weren't first trained um, in engineering and uh, I think you went to Princeton as an undergrad, and I wonder if you could just mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about that time and what happened to you there. So, as you said, I did go to Princeton as an undergrad. Um, I went to Princeton not really knowing what to expect. This sounds really silly, I know, but I'm Nigerian, and there are some schools in the U.S. that you hear about a lot, <laughs> you know, when you're not from here. Princeton is not actually one of the ones that I heard about a lot. So I went to Princeton thinking it was going to be Um, I was like, wow, this is the most humble Ivy, so I can get a good education, but nobody knows the school, only only to get there and realize it was me. (laughs) So being there was a really interesting experience, I will say. Um, But one of my first first weeks, I think, when I got into Princeton, I talked to somebody who was a little bit older than me, and I think was maybe a third year when I was a first year, and now that means nothing, but as a young person that was hugely different, as you know. And I remember she said, I was just talking about my interests and she was like, oh, you sound like an anthro major. And I was so offended at being so like (laughs) neatly pinned into a box that I refused to take any anthropology classes for for at least three semesters. And then the fourth semester, which is a semester when you have to choose your major, I took one class and loved it. (laughs) And then ended up deciding in that semester that that's what I was going to do. So um, I did anthropology. I I just loved that it had, I loved a lot of things about it. One of the things I loved was that it just had this, this wide like purview of topics that you could be interested in. Anthropology had, it was about the world. So you could think about anything and talk about anything. And also it had this really strange history, which was problematic because it had been used as like a tool of empire and of colonialism. But because it had that history, it was a thing that was just constantly discussed <laughs> in the field. And so it felt to me very different than some other fields, which I thought had a similar history, but didn't just didn't have to wrestle with it in the same way. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I liked about it is that I could, as I said, I could talk about anything. And the things that I was interested in thinking about had to do with just tech, really, and emerging technology. When I was young, I actually had these communities online that I would like write with just people around the world and we would write and share our writing with each other. And it really was like a community of practice, but we were so young, we wouldn't have thought to call it that. Really for me, the the idea of the internet as this place where you could just connect with people who shared your interests, 
it was that before I even really knew what it was. And so as I got older, I, I started to realize, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, and I ended up focusing a lot on, on tech then and trying to do this stuff that I kept calling anthropology of tech or anthropology of media, depending on who I was talking to. And at this time, it was not like this was something that a lot of people were talking about. I'm sure a lot of people were talking about it in places. But this, I went to university in 2007. And, you know, Facebook was founded in 2005. It was early days. And one of the things that happened in Princeton is that you have to do work on the senior thesis. And so mine had to be tied to anthropology because that was my major. And I had this thing that happened, which was just one of my friends actually passed away when I was in university. And this was during that time when Facebook was still new. And so a lot of people were writing on, on her wall I was watching this happen and also looking at it a lot because also just grieving and trying to figure out what it meant to grieve and how, you know, a lot of grief has to do with people you're around and, and searching for something. When someone is gone, you're searching for a kind of connection. And what I was watching was people having that impulse and sort of like leaking it out onto this Facebook page or really pouring it out <laughs> onto her mm. Facebook page. And what I also was seeing was as some people were doing that, a lot of other people were furious at that happening. And they were like, mm. what are you doing? This is Facebook. Don't put yeah. these things here. This is so, and of course, no one was like, oh, because of privacy. At the time, people were like, this is, this is like a desecration. How, how could you use this place to be talking about these kinds of feelings and emotions? That's not what it's for. And maybe probably as a bit of distance too from the situation, I really latched onto that moment and found it really interesting and found myself thinking, realizing oh, this is a moment when we are deciding what the terms of this space are going to be. and But we have to make the decision in real time because we haven't seen this happen. Facebook is for young people. You're not supposed to die here. And I ended up focusing my whole senior um, thesis on this whole topic. Wow. Right. So, you know, just hearing those twin anecdotes, like when you were a young person, you were on that the cusp of that generation who was finding online communities, like niche communities that we think of as kind of the promise of the internet, that kind of democratized and flattened world. And then you got rushed right up to, and that really was those early days where it was the wild west in terms of rituals. No one had some sense of like, what is appropriate, right? What What is the decorum that we're all going to make up here? Or, you know, and, and as you said, watching people just wildly diverge in their expectations, because we just, we were still in those, in those days, it was still surprising to keep hearing from in a flat platform, you know, a person that you went to junior high with when you lived in another town, you know, mm -hmm. three houses ago or whatever. And then, you know, to hear from your colleague and for that flat space was still surprising. Like all that adjacency was still surprising. Right. And so it sounds like you were looking at the anthropology of tech in those very emergent social forms of digital tech, right when they were also busting at the seams of what they could do. Is that right? I think you've, you've put it so well. That is exactly what it was. And I feel lucky in some ways, because as I said, this wasn't a moment when at Princeton, now, now at Princeton, there's a whole department that's around digital humanities. And that's a field that has a lot of weight and it means something and people know, understand what that is about. But when I was there, that wasn't the case. In fact, when I told my fellow students I was writing something on Facebook, they were like, what? 
You know, it was like, oh my God. You know, they were really made fun of me. They're like, you find the strangest things. How are you getting away with this? So you just wanted an excuse to be on Facebook. And I was like, no, I, I promise this is a moment. Something is happening that's very interesting. And they were like, uh-huh. Yeah. But, I, but I was so lucky because I had this advisor who I, I feel so grateful to because she was like, look, here's the thing. I explained to her, I was like, I think there's something interesting here. And she was like, you're right. There is. Here's the thing. No one else is going to see it. No one else is going to think that it is, but it is. So you have to write on this. And I was like, okay. And if not for her, I think I would have just dropped it because I would have been like, what am I doing? But having someone who just was like, yes, yes, look at this thing. Like, yeah, who cares? Who cares if, if it's um, mainstream? Who cares if people can see what that is? Your job is to show that, reveal that a bit. And I, I yeah, I just still feel very grateful. Yeah, I mean, that's a kind of iconic teacher moment where it's oh, yeah. not, you know, right? It surpasses any idea that that the professor's main sort of contribution to you was this like X amount of knowledge that they poured into your head, but instead the permission, like that moment of permission. Yes. And, and even when it was outside of her purview, maybe just saying, you're right, that it is going to seem counterintuitive. Go, go toward that thing. I mean, there's something really just enduring, I think, about that quality. But also, I mean, it makes sense, right, that in what other field but anthropology would you go, oh, no, 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 I've learned enough to know that material culture really is everywhere, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Is, I mean, that there is something really moving about that. And I'm also just really struck by how grief and suffering is often this catalyzing thing. I mean, yes. You know, it's not as it would be cheap to say that, you know, things happen for some kind of reason. I don't mean that at all in that pattern way. I just mean it is a kind of glue. I mean, it, it just electrifies our our intellect, too. I mean, how powerfully shaping that was to your career. I mean, it's just it's just remarkable. Well, so you finished this degree and then I seem to recall that you had an internship more deep in the heart of tech. Is that right? That, when I was writing that, that would have been my, my fourth year, my last year of university. In the summer before my fourth year of university, I, I, again, almost the whole time I was there, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I really didn't know. It was this ongoing tension and ongoing issue, I thought. And I managed to get an, an internship in advertising, um, in a huge advertising company the summer before uh, my final year. And everybody was like, that's not important. What is important is anyone who has these skills. <laughs> and I just remember sitting there and being like, okay, well, first off, I feel like I could do all of that. I just didn't know that that was what people were supposed to be doing. And at the same time, I was thinking that I had been um, spending a lot of time thinking about tech from this supposedly anthropological point of view. That's what I thought, this anthropological perspective. And I felt like I knew things and I understood it. But then I started to wonder if I actually knew what I was talking about, if I didn't know how to, like how things worked under the hood. Like, can I talk about Facebook if I didn't know how to code? The answer is yes. But at the time, I thought, oh, maybe it's not. Maybe I can't. Maybe they're right. And so as I got to my final year, I thought to myself, well, it's too late. You know, I am about to leave this place. And I didn't learn anything around physical computer. I didn't learn anything around just general computer. I didn't. I, I just learned how to write and think, uh, what's that going to do? And so I just Googled, really, I typed into Google any graduate program where I could learn how to code. And what I found was this program at NYU called the Interactive Telecommunications Program. And I noticed that it was pretty much the only graduate program that didn't really expect too much. They were like, yeah, just come here. We'll teach you. 
And so I thought to myself, that's where I got to go so I can learn how to understand what's actually happening in these platforms that I'm talking about. And so that's what I did right after, right after I graduated. I went straight there. I think it was in some ways a big risk because I didn't know what I was stepping into, but I knew that I, it was like buying time too. And the thing is, I applied to this program because I thought it would teach me these things that I thought I needed to know. The thing I did not pay very much attention to is that it was also an art program. <laughs> so I sort of fell into this, this art school. And really, ITP is a mix. It's art, it's design, it's tech, it's all of those things and absolutely none of those things. But it is enough of all of them that I felt like I had no idea what was going on. So for instance, they would say, show me your portfolio. And I was like, well, what would be in that? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> I genuinely was very confused. I remember also um, people would always ask, what did you do before you came here? Because when I when I went to that to that program, most people were in their late 20s. They were using it to pivot out of some career and into something else. And so there were maybe in a class of 100 and something, there were maybe four of us who came um, straight from university. They really didn't encourage it at that time. And so when they, they say, what's your background? And I was like, I have no background. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> So, and then I, I struggled. I will say I struggled a lot at ITP, partly because of that. Did you actually struggle with kind of like, I'm just thinking about myself, you know, building a circuit board or, I mean, did, did that stuff come easily to you or was that also another world kind of in terms of mindset and know-how? Nothing came easily. <laughs> Nothing came easily. That was another world. And it was, it was, I had this sense the whole time I was there, like everybody knows something that I don't. But I can't even ask the question because I don't know what that question is <laughs> to what everybody knows. I felt very outside of it. I don't say it was difficult, but I was learning and picking things up. I think it was difficult in that way that any new space will be. And for me, because I felt outside of it and across a lot of different axes in terms of my age, my background, by just everything, everything. It was like my ethnicity, but also my focus, but also my, um, just the way that I looked at the world, everything, not knowing any of this stuff. And a lot of people came there having heard about the program, knowing what it was like doing. And I honestly was there and I was like, but why, why are it? I don't, I don't get it. Mimi's year of graduate school at the ITP program at NYU turned into another year there as a researcher, where Mimi continued thinking and making her way through all those anthropological questions about how tech shows up in our lives. It was, as she said, slow going and bumpy. But then, in that second year, something changed. Like, what was the aha moment where you made a thing, you understood the artfulness of it, like why it wasn't a kind of like a gadget it was it was doing something cultural like what was the moment either that year or after where you thought I made this thing and I know I have some sense of what why it matters but so I stayed on as, as a researcher after I graduated and I I did this project or something I don't I call it now an intervention and I think it really it was the turning point this particular thing I did which I will say I was already starting to be interested in um, the space that I thought programming could give me, uh, a kind of distance that I found really useful. And this project really typifies that. So what happened was that I was in New York and um, living in Brooklyn, and I was getting catcalled a lot. And 
I wanted a response, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to say anything, which is, I guess, the difference between me now and then. I didn't want to have to respond to somebody in person, but I wanted to have some kind of response, uh, something that could ameliorate the feelings I would have after somebody catcalled me and I would feel kind of weird, but then they would feel fine. And I didn't think that was fair. (laughs) So I did this thing, which now is pretty, it's just like, cool, you made a bot. But again, at the time was very different. For that summer, anytime somebody cat called me, I would give them this piece of paper and it had a phone number on it. They thought it was my phone number. If they tried to call it, you couldn't. But if you texted it, it would go through. And I had it set up to the server so that if you texted it, you would get one of a string of pre-programmed messages. So people, this would happen all summer. Someone would cat call me. I would just come up to them, give them this piece of paper. It had this phone number. Then they would text it. They would try to talk to me. And then instead of me getting it, it would go to the server and it would be like, oh, I wish you understood all this made me feel or like, um, why are you reaching out to me this way or whatever. I had all these different messages. They were very overwrought, I would say. (laughs) So I did this whole thing. And what happened was that at the end of that summer, I realized I had inadvertently created a database of all of my cat callers' phone numbers. And it was one that they had opted into because they had texted me. (laughs) And I said it was like in that moment, I finally understood some of the things I had been hearing people when they were talking about data collection and everything involved in it. And it also just became really clear to me that there was this relationship that had happened between me and them. And I had written this code and set this whole thing up so that I I could have this distance, but it still was very intimate. And I also realized that when I would talk to people about it, the thing that everyone was focused on was that artifact of the phone numbers the phone numbers from the catcallers. And that was interesting. But to me, what was much more interesting was the process that brought that into being and what it felt like to have to walk up to people and give them this piece of paper and then be pulled into this strange dynamic with them. And all of that, I realized, was lost in just looking at the artifact. It was like, oh, yeah, look at these catcallers. And it it just felt completely disconnected from everything that brought it into being. And it was in that moment, it is so rare to have one moment that was so many realizations where I was like, wow, There is something really powerful happening in this act of data collection, but what is powerful about it is the way that it it manages to be divorced from its context. And two, I can learn something about myself and about the world through these art pieces. It sounds like, right, that you were kind of in the middle of this second year of just deep immersion of making things. You had this whole anthropological training. And so there you were in the medium of like material digital culture again, but like the art sort of frame for it arrived in this sense that you weren't making a product for sale. You weren't, you know, trying to solve a problem exactly. You were trying to build into questions and to let them live as such. And like you said, you created a database, but even the database, which is interesting, was much more interesting in its big anthropological context. And what else is that but a work of art around a big frame of those interactions, those choices that those folks made, the resulting database, but also the messages back, and then just the duration of all that stuff together. That that is, I mean, what we'd call now and was starting to be called then maybe um, is like a social practice that mm-hmm. has technology, you know, as its medium and in some ways at its heart, but really it's about how irreducibly complex a technology arrives and in, in, as an exchange in, in a set of lives. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. That's it. And I think, 
I had gone into a lot of these spaces not really understanding what these, I was like, what is this? Why, why the art, the portfolio, I don't, why, why the, why all these things? And it felt like in that moment, the questions were answered. And in this very surprising way, which is, you know, how all of the best kind of projects like this, the best inquiries, they surprise you. So that's like a kind of aha moment. And you have built a body of work in the intervening years on just kind of endless variations on this very thing where the technology, tell me if this is right, where technology is both medium and question and answer and also barrier and hindrance and also realm of possibility. And you've woven it into a whole bunch of different social and political matters, some of which are at the scale of, you know, one person, individuals. I'm thinking about broadcasting your heartbeat, you know, publicly Mm -hmm. to a whole room of gallery goers and some at the much more systemic scale, thinking about racial politics and so on. Some about Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence and some about data. Just give us a little tour of the kinds of range of things that you've done as art projects that that contain and use the medium of tech? So some of my work, let me see, I've had this piece called The Library of Missing Datasets, which really took that question, what does it mean to turn the world into data? And then was like, well, what about things that can't be turned into data? What about things that are missing, things that can't be collected? Or people who want to make sure that they they avoid that process or who don't want to make sure that they do, but nevertheless, that happens. What does that mean? And so that one was this whole research project, which was thinking about all of these data sets that weren't being collected and why they weren't. But really, it turned into this inquiry into those patterns of absence, which I think become the point at which you can you can see something happening in these large socio-technical systems. You have this absence and it reveals something more. And that whole project was about that. And so that has so many different forms. Um, one of the art forms is this, this output, this library of missing data sets, which is this filing cabinet that has all these missing data sets in them in folders that have the title of the data set at the top, but then there's nothing in the folder. And I have different iterations on this depending on where it's shown, but all of it gets at that question of what is missing? What does it mean for something to be missing right now in this time? And then what are, what's that pattern behind those things? So I'll have the library missing data sets version one, then version two, then version three. And each one is, is kind of different and it highlights a different aspect and gives me a chance to play around a bit more in something else. And so I've done the same thing with this piece, Us Aggregated, has multiple. Oh, and I'll say the other reason I like to have multiple versions is because I, I said before I'm Nigerian. I'm from a group called the Igbo. And historically, traditionally, there are no museums in our culture because it wouldn't make sense to have some a piece of art that just stays the way it is and it's just collected. And actually, the history of art making in our culture has, or in some parts of our culture, has been one of creating things and letting them disappear, letting them be destroyed, because the point is the process of making it, not just having it. And I obviously love that. And so I think this coming up with different versions is speaking to both of those traditions. And so this piece, I have this piece, Us Aggregated, which takes um, photos from my family's collection that have never been online and feeds them into Google's reverse image search algorithm, which then returns photos of people or things that are seen as similar. And I have multiple versions of this. And the whole point is this idea of what does it mean to be grouped and be seen as similar to someone else? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, people listening to this who may be unfamiliar with contemporary art, I mean, you can think of the all the mediums that you're using as an extended form of what would have been in studio practice 
paint or ceramics or, mm-hmm. um, you know, any other kind of material that we think of as being made, uh, you know, for stuff that we're used to contemplating in a gallery, but you're taking this other kind of substrate of our lives now, which is all this stuff. Sometimes it's zeros and ones, and sometimes it's the hardware that is the packaging for that, but it's all representing it in the way that the arts have always done, that they, they do this estrangement work. They, they defamiliarize us from what we think we know about it. So all of that playing with what's being collected as data in the background all the time of our lives, what's also not being collected. So looking at in that kind of like reverse photograph negative, you know, like where what's present, what's absent and doing all that same defamiliarizing work, but with these brand new materials that have a way of settling into our lives as though they were inevitable, even though they're mm-hmm. emergent. It's so wild. Right. And so I think, you know, too, I can imagine any number of people hearing this thinking engineering and technology is for problem solving and everybody knows the arts are for, you know, problem finding or, or asking questions or whatever. And what I love about your work is that you're you're deep in the realm of the technology, which, right, is, is supposed to be in that solution space and you're conforming it to the asking of questions. You're having that same medium do that question asking work and people expect that you're going to have it in paint or in poetry or in this, these mm-hmm. other forms, but you're just really contorting the normative functions of technology to do something else. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. One of many things. One of the interesting pushbacks that I get sometimes when I apply for, for a grant or, you know, talk to somebody about a project, they're like, but that how is, isn't that, is that, can you do that? Is that art? Does that count? And I think that this shifting, this is so very like contemporary art, but shifting and and being like, look, getting you to see this a little bit differently. That is part of it. That's, that's part of the art is this, this putting together these things that seem like they don't go together, but then allowing you to see, well, maybe they do. And that, that does something different, doesn't it? But I understand it is, um, it's an ask in the way that at least with painting, there's a kind of familiarity. You look, you know what you're looking at and you know what to look for. And there's something destabilizing, I think, for a lot of folks in these emergent forms because you're, it's not just the, the painting that's different. It's like the frame is different too. And now you have to consider it all. Mimi, I love hearing about the encounters that you had when you were a student, but this series, as you know, is about engineering education and particularly the site of the classroom and mm. what it does or doesn't do to alter the kind of status quo of, of technology and engineering practice. And so I wonder if you could take us then into the classroom, because I know then you've gone from student to professor. And I know that you've taught students, some of whom their home disciplines are very much on the technical side and engineering. And sometimes you've taught in contexts where students are coming from a more liberal arts background, um, Mm -hmm. or maybe even in art making practice. In the best spaces, it's like you want to find a way to show how these political considerations are wrapped up in these technical considerations, which are wrapped up in these ecological considerations, which are now wrapped up in these social ones. And they're all connected. And you can you can choose to focus on one little piece of it. Sure. That means you do have your little microscope trained. So what we're trying to do is say, all right, let's look at the whole thing, which is a difficult task. And I have found that some subjects really lend themselves to this really nicely. And this is why I love teaching mapping classes. I love it so much because I think maps are all of those things at once, particularly when you're thinking about digital mapping. Digital mapping, there's a whole aspect of it that has to do with just even, you know, even coding, really, and and really some forms of just, again, scientific and geographic knowledge. But then there's also this question that's about aesthetics. What does a map look like? And then there's this question of what does it do? How does it function? Who is it for? How has it changed? 
And with digital mapping in particular, you have this issue where you're, you're trying to take a spherical, mostly spherical globe or world, and you're trying to f- flatten it and put it on a 2D Cartesian plane. So what that means is that you have to choose some area is not going to be represented well. So you have to choose where. <laughs> and just this is it. This decision is one that gets made every time we use it. A choice has to be made, but it's not just a spurious choice. It's a choice that now we are going to live with and then build on top of and whatever. And it's going to do something, but we are going to have to make a choice. And I think that this is part of why I love mapping is it it gets at this, like you have to make the choice in a technical way, but you also are making it in a political way. And then you have to make it in an aesthetic way. And each of these things are going to influence how people are able to just navigate space. And even that idea of navigating space then becomes something you can interrogate. We're learning about emerging technologies, but in shifting it so that the tools were the point, but they weren't um, on, a, on a pedestal because anybody could use any format. It felt wonderful. Yes, it seems, you know what it, what it is. I think what, what I started to realize in teaching all these different classes is that it can be tricky because of these cultural hierarchies. Sometimes the students will become fixated on what, what can you do? Like, what are you able to do? What do you know how to do? But what I want them to think about is what do you choose to do in this yeah. moment? Yeah. And that's a different question because that one, it doesn't matter what you, it matters what you know, but it's not, that's not the end all be all. It's, it's what you apply in a particular moment, which means you have to think about the context and the audience and the place where it is and who you're talking to and why. You have to just deal with so much more that it doesn't become the simple uh, optimization of one variable. Instead, it's like, you're going to juggle. You got to juggle it all, which is, which is, which is life, you know? <laughs> yes. interested in what you think as someone who's been teaching through a lot of this time now all of a sudden tech criticism is a, is a field like tech companies there was a point where support for the tech industry was bipartisan and now regulation of it is bipartisan right we're in a very different moment and i wonder what it has been like for you if you notice anything different in teaching as someone who is also in between a lot of these spaces now that it feels to me like something in the ground has shifted. Yeah, well, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I've certainly seen it just in right, the last couple of years, students reach what feels to me like an unsatisfying kind of bottleneck. So I think in my own context, students with a lot of technical skills who've been reading enough worrisome headlines about AI, for example, that they at, at certain points, just choose not to build anything. I mean, they, they, mm-hmm. the idea that there would be something buildable uh, from which they could shield any harms whatsoever felt impossible. And so the choice was sort of shutting down. And I think we can imagine, I mean, I've, I've certainly, one of my colleagues, Erhard Graef, has had has shepherded students through design refusal. And, and we're going to talk about that on this series. So I think mm. um, there is a moment for sure where refusal is an important part of a learning process and indeed is appropriate, right, in industry and beyond. We want that possibility, the, the possibility of refusal or for of, of stopping a project to be alive for students. Nonetheless, I worry a little bit about just the calcification of their capacity to do that good tinkering and prototyping. You know, I mean, I already said I've noticed among liberal arts students 
a kind of reticence that I have really tried to encourage, you know, that, that, that builder's agency, right? Be, be brave um, with all your wits intact, but, but in the prototyping and experimental spirit and just what you said so beautifully about software, understanding that if you, if you pilot things and try them out modestly, you can, um, you can reverse course and you can, you can alter as you go. But I, I do want a generation of students who do feel the best that engineering offers, which is that agency of the, of the proposition, you know, the proposal, the what if question in stuff. And so I am a little bit worried, not about the, the, I mean, I welcome, of course, a whole discourse of ethics and tech. It's more the kind of binaries and black and white thinking, uh, morally speaking, that comes with some of that discourse such that people want to rush to be sure that they're on the right side, right? And, And the right side often feels like, throwing rocks in the discourse. And I think like, yes, we need that, but we do need people also to be the builders. And so I regret sometimes that the temperature of it and the moral valence of it, but tell me what you think. Oh, I, I completely agree with you. I think this is something I've noticed as, as well is that it's this um, almost like a purity problem. Yep. It's, it's when people, I think, come to this conclusion, which is not inaccurate, where they say, I can't build anything that won't be criticized, or I can't build anything that won't yeah. um, do something that I might not like, <laughs> you know? I can't build anything that won't X, Y, Z. And there are a number of different paths to go from there. And this is very, I agree with you, it's very different than thinking about refusal or indifference, the way that those have been leveraged by different groups in particular moments and contexts. I think that often the place where a lot of students go is, so I won't build anything at all. When where I'd love for them to go is, so I will build again and again with different people and in different ways and over and over again. And the process of doing this, you know, it will, we will have to just switch and find an answer and, and find multiple answer and it will not be enough. So we'll find another one. You put that so well. I mean, I, I was just like nodding my head enthusiastically. I, you know, I think that that is the beauty of, of a prototyping disposition. You know, it's like prototyping as almost like an ethics, you know, where you're committed to staying in there. And Mm -hmm. and, and it requires, I think, a kind of generosity among all parties. I mean, I was just talking to people as well about this just today, trying to say the way I think of it is like, can we make room for modes of critique and modes of repair? And both of those we could, you know, have endless debates about. But can we nonetheless say there's room in a big building house uh, for both of those and for, for technology to do some of the reparative work and also some of the critical work and for the art mm-hmm. practices that, of our lives, you know, to, to do, yes, it's familiar thing of critical work, but also to be useful and reparative. And can we say, wow, sometimes I'm looking for a cultural artifact and sometimes I'm looking for a better mousetrap. And so there's a lot of building involved in both of those things. And I could bring all the, my critical wits about me to both enterprises, but they do different stuff, you know, and Mm -hmm. we need culture and we need practical tools. And, uh, that's different, I think, than saying, can't we all get along? I think there is just being specific about the, the mission that we're on and being generous enough to see that other people's contributions are just on a, a different project. I mean, does that sound right to you? It sounds very right to me. I remember really clearly talking, um, years ago about a project, I think it was maybe this library of missing data sets and somebody, uh, and, and the way that it was construed by the group I was talking to, they were like, wow, really great to see this activism project. Hmm. And then a few years later talking about it, 
and having this a different group say, like, wow, really great to see this project of tech criticism. And I, it was just interesting because I thought I haven't described myself as any of these things in these settings. Yeah. What I think, you know, our job is to hold all of it. That's that's the work. It's this question of fluidity to switch depending on where we are and what what needs to be done. And that's that's okay. It doesn't have to be just the one, like you said, the binary, the this, the that, the I am this, this, this. I I understand being on the side, um, sometimes, particularly, I'm framing this in in the language of being a critic, because I think it's just something that at least I see kind of alluded to a lot. And I think a lot of the students I've worked with say this. And that coming from that position of criticism, it's it's a little safe sometimes, because you can be on the outside and like you said, throw the rocks. And that is that's safer. But this is, it comes back to this class I used to teach on mapping. The thing that I love about maps is that you have to take a stand. You have to make a decision. If you're going to use it, you have to, and your decision is going to have a result. And the answer isn't to just not use the map. The answer is we have 5 million different projections. And you making anything is so, so hard and so endlessly worthwhile. You have to, you have to do it. Like you have to switch and use different ones and know why you're using it and be accountable to that, but also be willing to use a different one. I think that's, that's the task. That is the task I see for a lot of students today. One of them, one of many. Talking with Mimi reminded me once again how many pathways there are into technology and how many opportunities there are for making the technology laboratory or classroom into a truly lively place, one that's replete with play and surprise and that's awake to questions that can gather a whole community of people. In practice, like Mimi said, it's important that we build things together. In engineering, that's called prototyping tinkering, testing, building things to learn. And I wanted to hear more about that, and this time from the more traditional tech side. So I asked my colleague at Olin College, Aman Milner, about his own training in computer science and about how he makes prototyping into a joyful, exploratory practice with his undergraduate students, but also with young children. I try to introduce opportunities in under-resourced areas that may have had schools that might not have had the computer labs because the potential is great. The only thing that is lacking for these young people could just be one opportunity. That's on episode five of Sketch Model, and I hope you'll join us. Sketch Model is a production of Olin College of Engineering, a four-year undergraduate engineering college outside Boston, Massachusetts. Sketch Model is an ongoing investigation into the substantive engagement between the arts and humanistic disciplines in engineering education, and it's been supported by the Mellon Foundation. We spent the last four years running programs at our institution, bringing more robust arts and humanities to our campus in the form of residencies, summer fellowships for students, and collaborations for faculty and staff. You can read all about these programs and ideas on our website, olin.edu slash sketchmodel. That's O-L-I-N dot E-D-U slash sketchmodel. 
Sketch Model team members are Sharon Breitbart, Kristen Casasanto, Jonathan Adler, Deb Chatra, and Benjamin Linder. I'm Sarah Hendren. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.